The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Great, Father. Great to be back. Well, I'm glad you made it back. I'm glad you came back. <laughs> yes, yes, Father. It's great to be here. Uh, Father, you wanted to begin by asking for some prayers tonight? Yes, I, I would appreciate uh, having some prayers for uh, some very dear souls, uh, Mr. Joseph Percher and uh, uh, Dr. David Hoferter, and uh, there are a goodly number of other dear souls, you know, we know who need prayers. Uh, Father Skirky is re recovering, Father Martin Skirky is recovering from rotator cuff sur surgery, and uh, so uh, he thanks everyone for their prayers for his um, successful treatment and uh, full recovery. We trust that is pending. We have to pray that his recovery be quick and and complete. And uh, there are well, there are many other souls we know who I could and should mention here. But uh, I just uh, ask you to pray for the intentions that have been directed to me for the sake of being directed to you. I ask your prayers for them all. I apologize that I can't mention everybody all the time, but I intend to. Uh, I do also want to uh, make an honorable mention of Mary and Martha in Knoxville, Tennessee, and uh, thank them for uh, uh, the, their, their beneficence in providing uh, good things for the show. Thank you very much. God Couldn't bless do you, it without them. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Uh, well, Father, we have a whole list of questions that we wanted to get through tonight, a lot of, of viewer questions that have, uh, that have come in to us. Um, so I'd like to try and work through as many of these as we can. A lot of great questions in here. Um, the first one, Father, you know, we talk about uh, socialism and liberalism a lot on this program. And uh, one of our, our viewers would like to know if uh, it is a sin for a Catholic uh, to, to be a liberal or to be a socialist. And if so, why? Well, I think that the church itself has given that answer. Uh, and that highlights the fact that when people ask questions like that of a priest, they don't want the priest's answer, they want the church's answer. And it's the priest's responsibility to know what the church says. So if they ask the priest, what's your opinion on that? That's a different matter. But uh, ordinarily what they want is the church's answer, and uh, that's what I'd, I'd hope to give. Uh, St. Pius XI said it's impossible for one to be at the same time a true Catholic and a sincere socialist. They're mutually exclusive. Because uh, the Catholic Church asserts that God has given to human beings certain rights, and socialism denies that. And so there's an intrinsic um, opposition between socialism. The ISM is important, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's actually a form of belief, as it were, a belief system, and, uh, and Catholicism. Um, that, and as far as liberalism goes, again, we have the book by Dr. Sarda y Salvani, uh, Liberalism is a Sin, and uh, it states it very clearly. Uh, liberalism 
as a philosophy is based upon the idea that uh, in public life, at least, individuals have to follow their own uh, consciences as absolutely supreme. Uh, they are not subject to any moral constraints of faith or anything like that. Um, but even, even if someone is a believer, uh, let's say, in our Lord Jesus Christ and, and believes that uh, Christ uh, has taught us a certain moral, moral code, uh, that in public life, not only can one disregard those moral principles of our Lord, his faith, um, but in public life, one must disregard those things. Liberalism has, in its, among its tenets, that basic idea. And essentially what it's telling you is that God can be your God individually, but uh, he cannot be your God, um, you know, socially. In, in terms of your social life and your contact uh, relationships with other human beings. Uh, that's where his authority stops, and you're free to live your life as though he didn't have anything to say about it, or even as though he didn't exist. Uh, liberalism is obviously uh, a grave sin against faith to begin with, and uh, it is just highly immoral in its fundamental principles that someone can be exempt in public life from the law of God. So God does not have any authority to rule there. Mm. Uh, opposed to that, of course, is the Catholic Church's teaching uh, that Christ is king and that he has authority over all his creatures, both individuals and in societies, that he is the Lord and master and king uh, rightfully in uh, the, his divine person as the almighty God himself, our Lord, being the true son, of the, the one true son of the one true God, but also by reason of his uh, incarnation, his sacred humanity, and uh, ransoming us as a redeemer from all of our sins. He has a, a twofold right to our allegiance, our homage, our obedience in all things. This is diametrically opposed to the teachings of liberalism. Mm -hmm. So, Father, could we say that it's a mortal sin for someone to be a liberal or a... Insofar as it is absolutely opposed by, by its very nature to divine revelation, to the teachings of the church, uh, teaching of our Lord, then it would be a sin against faith, it would be a mortal sin. In other words, if, one's, if one would say, look, I know um, I cannot be a liberal, really, a, a liberal in principle, and a liberal, and I cannot be a Catholic in belief, these two things are incompatible, therefore I choose to be a liberal instead. And I know that is in defiance of my Catholic faith, but this is what I choose, how I choose to live. That would be a mortal sin, certainly. Okay. Um, and um, also, it would not only be a mortal sin against faith, but it would lead to multiple mortal sins against morality and so many other virtues. <clears throat> but, uh, and if one were to say, um, you know, I'm a socialist, and I, and I know that there's no such thing really as Christian socialism, um, because there's a fundamental intrinsic opposition between um, the notion, of, the true notion of socialism and the true notion of uh, human nature as created by God in his own image and by grace and his likeness, uh, then one would have to make a choice between his faith and his uh, whatever political uh, allegiance or you know, his economic theories, whatever it is. Uh, opposed to his faith, and that would be a mortal sin for him to make a decision like that.
Now, there are those who, who pretend that you can have a Christian socialism or a Catholic socialism. But Pius XI said that's impossible. Yeah. Uh, any more than you can have a Catholic modernism. There's no such thing as a, a really a modernist Catholic or a Catholic modernist. Because as St. Pius X said, these things are intrinsically evil. And um, they're so mutually opposed that uh, Catholicism, embracing uh, Catholicism, must necessarily eradicate modernist ideas in a person's mind and heart. Embracing modernism is absolutely opposed, fundamentally opposed to Catholicism. If one were to say, well, why is that? You'd have to go to their basic idea of what Catholics believe faith is as a virtue and what modernists believe faith is as a virtue. Well, they don't believe it as a virtue. Um, they believe it's a sense. It's like a religious sense implanted in every one of us. Um, and uh, so these two notions of what faith is are so radically opposed to each other. You just can't be a Catholic and really a modernist at the same time. Mm -hmm. Read Pashendi about what St. Pius X said, the modernist concept of faith is, and you'll understand why he says, <clears throat> that modernism is so dangerous because it attacks, it doesn't just attack the faith, that is to say, the doctrines of the faith as they're exp expounded in the catechism, but modernism attacks faith itself at its very root, the very meaning of what faith is, is completely um, annihilated by, by modernist belief and replaced by nothing, you know, mm -hmm. uh, just some strange touchy-feely sort of uh, feeling, basically. It comes down to a matter of feeling. Mm -hmm. Father, this same viewer asked if, uh, if socialism uh, exists in hell, or what, what kind of mm -hmm. government is, is in hell? Well, one might say that, uh, you know, one asks, does communism exist in hell? And, um, to, to the extent that um, there is a tyranny in hell, right? Uh, there's a, the idea that the soul is, is a, 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 well, the, the communist atheists would say there is no such thing as a soul. Um, the soul is obviously very much believed in by Satan, and he values it very highly, right? All of his uh, hellish energy is directed toward the damnation of souls to attack God. Um, but, uh, you know, that's a curious question. There's no sa socialism in hell. I would say no. Why? Because socialism has to do with the goods of this world and how to control them and what right any of us has to have them and possess them or use them. Socialism is fundamentally an attack on private property, uh, that human beings have a right to own anything. Um, you know, you, you hear the, the, the saying of the World Economic Forum these days, which is involved in pushing the Great Reset, uh, that by 2030 you will own nothing, but you will be happy, right? And uh, that, that very concept is, is, it just intrigues me because it really sounds as though they're going to perform prefrontal lobotomies on everybody. In other words, anybody who is not happy with that situation where they're going to take everything away and you will be happy, anyone who's not happy will basically have to undergo a prefrontal lobotomy because they will be, uh, shall we say, not compatible with that system 
And so the only way to make them happy is by severing their cerebral cortex from the rest of their brain. And so they can no longer, they no longer have the capacity to be unhappy, as it were. I don't know if you know the history of the prefrontal lobotomy, but whenever, uh, <clears throat> whenever, uh, Il Duce, uh, uh, Antonio, uh, Anthony Fauci would pontificate about science and actually say, I am science, you know, remind me like, like Tasse Moi of, uh, of Louis the Fourteenth, you know, I am the state. Fauci saying, I am science, you know, <laughs> I am the embodiment of science. Well, you want to go back and you look at the history of medicine and science and how they, how they progressed, so-called, and you look back at the, at the the rage of of lobotomies and how lobotomies began to be performed on thousands and thousands of people, and it was all the thing at the time. It was really the thing. How do you how do you actually deal with a, a difficult personality. And Rose Kennedy is probably the most famous victim of a prefrontal lobotomy. Uh, they caught her as a young woman and basically reduced her to, to the mentality of a two-year-old uh, by, do you know what a lobotomy does to you? Well, it's rather gross. The, well, I don't know. Well, um, maybe I should just let that for people to look up who want to. Well, may, maybe, maybe I should mention this because it, it it just shows the bar barbarism of what is supposedly science, the state of the art of science and medicine. A, pre a, a lobotomy is the taking essentially of an ice pick, an instrument like an ice pick, a little longer perhaps, and jamming it through the skull at the eye socket in such an angle, in such a way that turning it back and forth, and the person is actually not sedated at that time. Um, except maybe by electric shock, turning it back and forth within the skull so that the blade severs the neurons, the nerves connecting the prefrontal cortex from the rest of the brain. And then taking out the ice pick and leaving the person that condition. Many people died from this. Um, but you, you know, this does horrendous damage. I mean, the, the, it actually destroys the personality of the person, you know, basically. Turns them into a bit of a zombie. You know? Now, there are those who escape it with a certain amount of functionality, who can even think, but there are many, many who are terribly damaged by this. Thousands. Uh, and the prefrontal lobotomy had its advocates. Well, I mean, the man who, who popularized it uh, in medicine, mainly sold it to the medical community, received the Nobel Prize for this. And there was another man who wasn't a doctor, but he actually advocated for it such that he became like the, the great marketer worldwide. He had doctors working under him performing these surgeries. And uh, one can look all of this up. But, you know, when we have a Fauci saying, science, 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 science saves, science liberates. And you actually look back and you realize science is human. It's, it's a human product. This is what human beings do. And what they do in the name of science is horrific sometimes. And what we see happening in our own day in the name of science is horrific. There's a history behind this that is very important. So, you know, I'm, I'm listening to what the World Economic Forum has to say about how you own nothing and be happy. Well, they have ways of making you happy. They have ways of making you happy. And they used to do it by using a, putting an ice pick through your eye socket and, and uh, just making you happy by taking away all your cares. <clears throat> this is the way they did it. 
They're not done yet. Uh, they have uh, other ways of doing prefrontal lobotomies now. They don't need ice picks. They have other ways of doing this now. But anyway, um, so beware. But, um, you know, when, we, when we're talking about back to socialism again, okay, they want, they want to introduce the set of taking away all of property, putting it under government control. It just astounds me how mindless young people are when they advocate, well, the old people too, especially. But with old people, there's got to be something malicious about it because they should know better. But the young people today who advocate for socialism, does it ever occur to them that basically the result of socialism is taking the control over the, the goods of society, especially the goods that people need to live on, you know, uh, food, clothing, shelter, and all the rest, taking those staples of production and putting them under the control of government. And government consists of politicians and bureaucrats. And if you were to ask the, uh, those militating for socialism out in the public square, well, <clears throat> are, you, are you saying you want to put everything, the food you eat, the clothes you wear, <clears throat> in your entire life, where you are allowed to go, what kind of work you're allowed to do, what kind of education you're allowed to have, what you're even allowed to learn in the course of getting that education. You want to put all of those in the control of politicians and, and the, their appointed bureaucrats. Is that what you want to do? I think most of them would say, well, of course not. I would never trust that, you know? But you say, well, but wait a minute. I thought you said you were a socialist. Well, what do you think that is? What do you, what do you, what do you think socialism does? So already we, we find maybe there's a little bit of prefrontal lobotomy at work there in the education they had that, that brought them to this mindlessness. But in any case, um, but I, I don't think there's socialism in hell because socialism has to do with giving control of the world's goods into the hands of despots, basically. But there are not the world's goods in hell. There, there's no world's goods to distribute or withhold in hell. Okay? There's only pain and suffering in hell. So... In that regard, I don't think there can be socialism in hell because I don't think it's a matter of how we're going to apportion the world's goods and having a right to them. I think the souls in hell have lost all right to the world's goods, any such goods at all. And so Satan does not reserve for himself the right to distribute anything good to the souls in hell, but only... Uh, presiding over their, well, he thinks presiding over their sufferings and misery. So I wouldn't call that socialism. Although, I'll tell you one thing, we may not be able to produce socialism in hell, but we can certainly produce hell in socialism. Because socialism in this world will bring us as close to hell, and in the past historically has done so, has brought human life as close to hell as we can get on earth. Well, We'll see where the great reset goes, you know, that wow. might top them all. Yeah, really. Wow. Okay. Um, a next question, Father, from a, a college student. He says that according to his, his, according to his history professor, uh, individual rights originated from the Enlightenment. Have you any truth at all to this? That topic? is one of the most, uh, I'm sorry, uh, it's, so, it's so ridiculous, it's actually laughable. We, we discovered human rights with the Enlightenment. That, that is very enlightening. <laughs> and I ask myself, oh my goodness, where has this man gotten his information? You know? 
<clears throat> if, you, if you really want to find out where the very true concept of human rights comes from, it's in the gospel. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Yeah. The, whole, the whole idea of the individual having a human soul individually created by Almighty God, whose life has a value that transcends politics, economics, or anything of the kind, right? Um, and the concept that uh, we all stand equally before God in terms of, as it were, you know, the value of our soul, our vocation to be loved by God and to know Him and to love Him and serve Him and to, and to finally love Him with all of our hearts and minds and souls in heaven. I mean, the, the idea, uh, uh, well, you, you look at liberty, equality, and fraternity, right? There is nothing uh, of, of human creation, of any human philosophy, um, that has so inculcated the true concept of these things, of, of true liberty, of true equality, and of true fraternity, of brotherhood. And there is nothing that could measure up, equal, challenge in any way the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, true Christianity, Catholicism, and the, church, the teaching of the Church. In, in that understanding of these three things in the right way. Uh, what the Enlightenment did was pervert these things. The Enlightenment perverted these very notions. It turned the liberty of the children of God, uh, the liberty from sin and uh, sinful passions and so on, into a liberty for license, what Pope Leo XIII called the liberty of perdition. Uh, that's what the Enlightenment did. Um, because it severed man from God. And only in God can we, who are created in God's image, know who we are, really, and what we exist for. So uh, we see the hell on earth they created with the, the great terror, um, and what's been going on ever since with revolution after revolution after revolution. Uh, you know, I mean, I can't, I can't understand how any, anybody cannot see at this point the connection between the rise of... Um, of Marxism and socialism and communism and uh, Stalinism, right? That particular species of communism and uh, the French Revolution and the Enlightenment that spawned it. How can people not see that connection? What, what blindness is there? The fact that by grace we are actually the children of God and we are united uh, by a common faith and hope and charity. That is all rejected by the Enlightenment. So, no, there, what the professor says is not only not true, it is exactly the opposite of the truth. Mm -hmm. It's one of those lies that is so egregious that you would have to say, well, what he's saying is not true. You'd have to say, that is an, the exact opposite of the truth. Mm -hmm. That's how evil and false that yeah. is. <laughs> and uh, any, any study of history, is that a professor of history is saying? Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness gracious! Yeah. Yeah. It's clear he doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't. He doesn't know history at all. Father, why do we? Why do we sometimes hear that our um, our American Constitution was a product of the Enlightenment, and we hear that uh, our founding fathers were were Enlightenment uh, men? I mean, the way that you're describing the Enlightenment and our American Constitution, they seem to be totally different. Um, well, Edmund Burke. Uh, you know, drew a very strong contrast between the French Revolution and the American Revolution. And he actually favored the American Revolution and condemned the French Revolution. As he saw, the French Revolution was based upon atheism and rebellion 
against God and faith. Edmund Burke was married to a Catholic woman who had a great influence on him, clearly. And he even defended the church, even though he's not a Catholic himself. He defended the Catholic Church when it was very unpopular to do so. And, um, but he saw the evil of the French Revolution um, in his Declaration of the Rights of Man as being a rebellion against God. And he saw what it would lead to. He saw the evils of the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. But he thought the American Revolution was different because he didn't see it as a rebellion against God. Uh, and you see in the um, you know, Declaration of Independence, uh, actually, that's, that's the, the beginning. You know? I mean, it's based in the, the natural law. And it's an appeal to God. Um, now, no, notably, of course, though the founding fathers, uh, with the exception of John Carroll, the founding fathers were not Catholics. They had been they received a classical education, and they were taught as gentlemen, for the most part. And uh, so there were, you know, elements of the Catholic uh, faith, but they didn't have the Catholic faith, and that was tr a tragedy because they. Uh, could not re actually secure, without the true faith, they couldn't secure the liberties, the God-given liberties they spoke of. But uh, when you look at the liberties they spoke of, um, you see those liberties were true. There, there was nothing in there that, that actually contradicted the Catholic faith. It's just the omissions, what they were lacking, that was a problem. See? With the French Revolution, it was, this, it was not that way at all. There was an explicit rejection of God and all that God stood for. And the attempt to emancipate man from God. Thus, it immediately fell into uh, uh, rivalries, dissensions, uh, murders, uh, and uh, tyranny. You know, inevitably it led to that. So, um, you know, we, we see the flaws in our own founding. We even see the influence of masonry their own founding. But again, you know, you also see evidence of resistance to masonry in our own founding, something that is conveniently left out. The Masons would like us to think that the Masons were completely in control of the founding of the United States of America and have gained the full credit for the establishment of our country. The Masons would like patriots to believe that they get all the credit for founding this United States of America. Um, but those who are very much opposed to our country, Catholics, would like us to believe, as the Masons do, that the Masons had all the control and that our country was nothing but a Masonic creation. But the truth is that, that it's not the case, that the Masons did not have absolute control. And there were instances in the foundation of our country in her early history that show that the Masons did not have complete control. Um, and so, thank goodness. But the more and more they would take control the more and more America would, would be socialized, become socialist. You know, the, the Masons were taking credit for all the socialist uh, movements and, and, and revolutionary forces in Europe throughout the 1800s. It was a time of great revolutionary fervor in Europe, the 1800s. And the Masons actually uh, credited themselves publicly for having a hand in and supporting in all of those movements. If not, if not uh, supporting them, even even uh, basically originating them, uh, creating them and driving them. So inevitably, as America would fall more and more under the control of the Masons, um, and the Kabbalistic Jews too, or like kind of hand in glove with the Masons, 
uh, America herself would undergo a kind of perversion of uh, truly noble ideals that were there, and uh, they would they would then fail because they were not rated, rated, uh, rooted in the one true faith of Christ. Um, and we see the results of that now. That's exactly what we see happening with the perversion of our morality, when all that is what was considered good and right and moral and and commendable, right, and admirable, is now held up to ridicule and condemned. And all that was considered to be vile and, and vicious and perverted is held up uh, as a great ideal uh, to be, you know, applauded, rewarded, even uh, imitated and, uh, and glorified by the modern, uh, well, I can't say modern society. There are people who, who uh, are repulsed by that but uh, by the, the leaders, especially of the Democratic Party. They glorify the things that uh, the country is, the people of our country have always found horrific. Mm. Um, so anyway, um, and, and this is what's happening. These are the seeds that have been sowed by the revolutionary movements, uh, and they have taken root, and they are uh, like, like gigantic weeds choking the life out of our nation mm -hmm. and the world today. Well, Father, since you mentioned the French Revolution, we had a question um, in regards to Robespierre and if he uh, was attempting to leak some kind of information about the Illuminati before his death. Have you ever heard that? Is there any truth to that? Uh, well, uh, you know, some actually suggest that uh, the uh, Robespierre committed suicide. Or what, what does the question exactly say? That is a question that was proposed. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, if he almost leaked any kind of information about the Illuminati. Right. Is that the, the whole question? Well, he says before he before he killed himself trying to escape the authorities. Okay, so did Robespierre, was Robespierre, was Robespierre almost leak information on the Illuminati before he killed himself trying to escape from the authorities? Yeah. Is that the question? Yes. Okay, well, it's important to read the whole question because that in itself shows that it's absolutely false. Robespierre did not kill himself trying to escape from the authorities. <clears throat> he, uh, he, he actually um, was killed by the revolution that he supported. He was killed by the terror that he created, right? <clears throat> he was trying to escape to, uh, to the support of his, of his uh, backers, but uh, he was captured. It was taken. And um, um, actually, Tom, as he was taken, um, a, a bullet um, struck him in the jaw, fractured his jaw. In fact, they had to wrap a bandana around his face to hold his jaw in place. They dragged him off. Eventually, he was dragged in that condition to the guillotine. And uh, that bloody bandage was torn away, and there was a, an absolute howl of, of pain that came from him, almost like, a, like an animal. He was so... Uh, anyway, it's very painful. They can imagine, and uh, he was guillotined. So the uh, you know the idea that, that he committed suicide is absolutely outrageous. If a history professor is spreading that error, it just shows that he has no idea what he's talking about. <clears throat> but anyway, uh, Rosier was killed with uh, his supporter Saint Just. They were captured together and they were guillotined together. <clears throat> but uh, Robespierre was the one who initiated the uh, the Great Terror, and. Um, 
But in any case, the idea that he was about to reveal secrets of the Illuminati, no, there's, there's no evidence of that. Someone should just make that up. Uh, Robespierre was, uh, he certainly would have been, you know, Masonic revolutionary. Um, but the, who was he going to reveal? Who was he going to reveal these secrets to? And at that point, were they even secrets anymore? You know, uh, the uh, revolution had taken such hold in France, in Paris, that uh, the revolution had revealed itself utterly. So, um, no, no, there's, there's nothing to that. Nothing okay. to it whatsoever. Okay. Well, Father, we have uh, some uh, more spiritual questions that uh, I thought were really good that I, I wanted to get to. And um, the first one, a viewer asks, how is Mary, the Blessed Mother, how is she our life, our sweetness, and our hope? The viewer asks, aren't those God's attributes to be our life, our sweetness, and our hope? Well, our life, our sweetness, and our hope, we, we can't exactly call them attributes of God. Um, there are attributes of God. But uh, but I understand it's a matter of terminology. Okay, we, we refer to Our Lady in prayer as our life, our sweetness, and our hope, in the sense that um, God has made her so, that God has placed her as a spiritual mother for mankind, especially those in the state of grace, of course. She's a spiritual motherhood over them. And so our Blessed Mother certainly has a role in, in uh, getting it uh, not only... Uh, the life of sanctifying grace, the life of grace for us, because she does pray for us. She is concerned about us. She does hear our prayers. Uh, she does uh, present them to her son in heaven. And, um, you know, she has a great influence because of her complete love for God. And her, her perfect love for God, not that she loves him infinitely, but she loves him perfectly with all of her heart, mind, soul, and strength. She loves him in a way that even the greatest of the angels cannot love him. She loves him as a mother loves her child, you know, which is a unique love between our Blessed Mother and our Lord, so, and it's mutual, uh, son to mother. And so we, we realize our Blessed Mother has a great role to play in our spiritual lives, and we're talking about the spiritual life there. So we see, when we appeal to Our Lady as our life, our sweetness, and our hope, we're not taking anything away from us whatsoever from our Lord. We're just saying that our Lord Jesus Christ has placed Our Lady in a very special place, and that she is uh, also an advocate for us, not as God, as a creature, but as a saint who loves him so perfectly, but who also loves us. <clears throat> you know, when you have someone who's a saint in heaven and has perfect love for God, meaning they fulfill the first great commandment, they love God with their whole heart, their whole mind, their whole strength, their whole will. In other words, all of their power of loving. They, they love God with that. And they hold nothing back from him, reserve nothing back from him. And uh, that has a great power over, over our Lord. Um, you see, certain miracles that were worked by our Lord, even to those who were pagans, right? For the pagan centurion, or the, the, the Canaanite woman. And our Lord was praising their faith. And uh, yet, St. Paul says, faith, hope, and charity, but the greatest of these is charity. So when one uh, has that perfect love for God in heaven, they actually have a great power before, before God, with God. And our Blessed Mother has that 
power to a special, special level, unique to her. Um, she is truly an advocate for our saving our soul. She loves us with a great, great love. Uh, she loves us actually through the love, love she has for her own son. Uh, she, above all in heaven, above all the angels and all the saints, has a, a will, you might say, an interest in our salvation. Why? Because the very sacrifice of her mother's heart in offering her son was the price of our salvation. She wants us to be saved. She does not want her divine son's sufferings to be lost to us. She has a very special and unique desire for each one of us to be saved. That's the care she has for each soul. Because she was willing to unite her will with God's in the sacrifice of her own son. That's, I mean, a mother would tell you, I mean, it's, it's astounding, you know, for a mother to do that, be willing to do that. And she did that for the sake of our salvation, God's will. So how could she not, in a sense, in her position in heaven right now, really have a unique and particular interest in the life of our soul, in grace, the grace of God, our being in sanctifying grace in here, and finally our being in the grace of the light of glory in heaven. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's simply a recognition of that. We say we call her our sweetness. Well, <clears throat> you know, we refer to... Jesus as being sweet, right? We, we talk about, oh, sweet Jesus. We use that expression. We use the expression dulcis. <clears throat> and uh, usually that translation, uh, that's a translation of a Latin expression, dulcis. It means a lot more than just sweet. Really. You know, we think of sweetness as being like saccharine and kind of sugary and all that. But the word dulcis, <clears throat> um, like in... in in Italian now, dolce, dolce, you know, it has a certain connotation and like pastries and sweetness and so on, almost like candy. But in the in the Latin, it means a lot more than that. Um, it's not something just sweet to the to the palate, to the tongue. It's something dear to the soul, something that is very agreeable and very gentle, but very uh, joyful to the to the spirit, to the soul. You know? And uh, that's the sense of this. We talk about our sweetness. And uh, so, we again, we, we see that uh, of our Lord, Jesu Dulcis Memoria, or Jesus of sweetest memory, right? Um, we see that sweetness in Our Lady. We see that reflected in her. We see that reflected in all that she has done and said uh, in the Sacred Scriptures and all that she's done traditionally throughout history for us. It's reflected in her apparitions, and her apparitions especially to little children or adults who are still very childlike uh, in their spirit. And there really is that genuine spiritual sweetness of our, in Our Lady that really draws that attention to her. And our hope, yes, we do have that hope in Our Lady, not that she replaces our Lord, but rather that she is, a, a, again, a conveyor of that hope uh, precisely because she does have the power to beseech her son 
Uh, and, and her son has accorded her that power as though, uh, as though she has a, a certain right to it because of her position as his mother who, who allowed her, her motherly heart to be nailed to the cross with him, in a sense. Uh, it's as though our, our Lord doesn't begrudge her that, rather quite, quite the contrary. Essentially, her prayers for sinners. And it is as sinners that we approach that idea of Our Lady as our hope because we know that she, he, she has the power to pray for sinners when they do not have the power or even the thought to pray for themselves, that she can obtain the graces. And there, there are sinners in the world today, and there always have been sinners in the world, who recognize uh, Our Lady's power in their own conversion from a life of sin. They recognized they were on their way to hell, very well advanced on their way to hell. And they, they acknowledged that, that it was her intercession, it was her voice, uh, as it were in the ear of her divine son, that um, obtained mercy. Now, you know, there are those, let's say Protestants, who still chafe at that idea. And they're very, very wrong to do that. They say they're Bible-believing, but they certainly don't act like it. They don't sound like it. Because if they were really Bible-believing, they would find that in the course of history, even the Old Testament, they would find that time and time again, in divine revelation, God has allowed human beings to plead for others. Um, the first thing that comes to my mind is Moses standing before God when God tells Moses, stand aside, I will destroy this people. I will make you great and your offspring. I will fulfill all the promises I gave to Abraham through you and your offspring. <laughs> and uh, Moses, again, who was very aggravated by these people, who himself was just really upset with them for having worshipped the golden calf and what they, you know, this betrayal, Moses stood there, and he would not step aside, and he asked God to have mercy on them. And because of Moses, God, God relented and had mercy. Now, some might say, well, you're saying God changed his mind, you know, so, you know, God is able to be influenced so he can change his whole plans. And that's not true. The point is, God knew exactly what was going to happen. God is the one who gave the grace to Moses to do this, after all. And God knew exactly what he would do. But the point is that the divine wrath, were it not for Moses pleading for his people, God would have destroyed them. But God gave the grace to Moses to do as he did and stand there. And he stood there, in the, as it were, in a figure of our Lord Jesus Christ, pleading for mercy for the sinful people. But if it could be true of a Moses, as a figure of the Savior, why couldn't that be realized also in the person of a, of a Virgin Mary in heaven who could plead for mercy for the people, of all people, more greater than a Moses, right, by far, that, uh, that the Blessed Mother could actually plead on our behalf. So when we, we say our hope, we, we're simply referring to very scriptural ex examples where God allows the pleading of, uh, of people to, let's say, gain his mercy for those who otherwise might not have it. <clears throat> I mean, there, there, were a time, there was a time when even the Jews were, were saying to our Lord, 
you know, this, this pagan man is asking for this favor. And the Jew, some of the Jews were saying, Lord, he deserves it because he's built us a synagogue. He's been very favorable and helpful and kind to our people and generous to us. And we really do, you know, ask if you could please grant him what he asked for. And this is uh, some of the Jews even pleading for a, for a heathen, a pagan. How often did that happen? Um, and our, and our, they, they thought that they could convince our Lord that the man deserved um, God's special consideration. And it happened. Our Lord granted that. But this is the example that we find in sacred scripture. That's the example we find in sacred scripture. It applies perfectly to what we see. Uh, in the case of our Blessed Lady, as not only our life and our sweetness, understood correctly, but our hope too. Uh, because her prayers are very powerful with God. And even sinners can be, uh, can be beneficiaries of Our Lady's prayers. Right? Mm -hmm. You look under the cross, what do you see there? You see the Blessed Mother, and you see Mary Magdalene. And uh, who's to say, again, that Our Lady's prayers had no role to play in the conversion of a Magdalene? Um, so, be rash to say that. Of course, standing between them is St. John. Or one would say the Blessed Mother is standing between St. John and Blessed and uh, St. Mary Magdalene. But in any case, that trio standing under the cross is very significant. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So. Okay. Um, well, Father, we had another question uh, where you were asked, how uh, exactly is God's grace delivered to us? God's grace is delivered to us? Well, you know, even again, Tom, you know, the choice of words is very interesting. Because that implies there is a deliverer, there's some delivery, right? <laughs> and you say, well, does, does someone d deliver God's, God's grace to us? Is there a deliverer? And uh, the fact is, in, in the Catholic understanding, yes, God's grace is. God's grace is something created. It's, it's, it's uh, something that he puts in the soul, okay? And that grace can come directly into the soul from God. But you notice that God has placed over us guardian angels, and he's uh, actually charged angels. The scriptures say that, that uh, God has given his angels charge over Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we understand from what our Lord has said that God has given angels charge over ourselves too. Our Lord says that specifically with regard to the angels. He calls them their angels, the angels of the children, who are innocent that they see God in heaven, even as they are taking care of children here alive on earth. They, they behold the face of God in heaven. So in a sense, they, in their angelic minds, are kind of a bridge, in a sense, between here on earth, the child who is in their care, and Almighty God in heaven, whom they see face to face in eternity. We can't understand how that's possible, but it's true. Our Lord has told us it's true, so by faith we accept it as true. And we know that through the guardian angel that God does work, and he does send us graces to enlighten us. That angel has charge to actually enlighten our minds. And, uh, but God's grace especially comes in, in actual grace. Well, I mean, we have to also make the distinction in answering that question between actual grace and sanctifying grace. The, the sanctifying grace, of course, is the the grace that makes the soul holy and pleasing to God, it makes, gives that soul that supernatural quality, that that soul is holy and pleasing to God. 
Uh, Protestants don't believe in sanctifying grace. They believe we're sinners. There's nothing we can do about it. Luther even said that saints in heaven are nothing but snow-covered dunghills. Uh, that's the best you can do, you know, with the human nature, human soul now. Of course, we know it's not true. Our Lord says, uh, you know, be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Our Lord didn't say that in vain. As if to say, well, I know this is impossible and it's totally, a, you know, there's no reality behind it. But this is what I want of you. Uh, not at all. Um, our Lord set a very high standard for us, and he gives the grace necessary to achieve it. So we have the sanctifying grace in our souls. That has to come directly from God. No creature can provide sanctifying grace. No creature can actually convey sanctifying grace for it. The angels in heaven pray to God for us, um, but the, the saints in heaven pray to God for us. Um, <clears throat> They would certainly pray that we be in the state of sanctifying grace and that we save our souls and we go to heaven. Um, but we have to realize that our being in the state of sanctifying grace comes to us as a result of, of uh, actually cooperating with the actual grace of God. And the actual grace of God actually moves us to do what is, what is pleasing to God, what is according to God's law and according to God's law regarding God's will and according to God's law. So when a sinner is moved by actual grace, he does not have sanctifying grace in his soul. But the actual grace comes to his intelligence and to his will. The intelligence is the power by which we know truth, and the will is the power by which we love goodness. And these are the powers in us that, enable, that make us like God. There's the image of God in man. And it's precisely in the power to know truth and the power to love goodness that the actual graces are at work to enable us to accept the truth, faith, to love what is good, and ultimately to love God more than anything created so that we can obey the commandments of God and never choose any lesser good in place of God as though we're an idol that we worship. This is the power of actual grace working in the soul, moving us to do these things, to choose the truth and the true good, ultimately God himself. When we cooperate with those graces then, we uh, actually clear our souls of sin. We can receive the justification of God by the redemption. And we can receive then the sanctification that comes from sanctifying grace, the presence of sanctifying grace in the soul which is the ultimate objective of all in earth and leads us to finally uh, the beatific vision of God in heaven, that supreme union with him. So, um, you know, we can receive actual graces through the agency of creatures. Um, we can have graces that are, that are placed in our minds and our hearts by our guardian angels, by the saints in heaven interceding for us. The sanctifying grace, though, that makes us so holy and pleasing to God has to be instilled by God directly in the human heart. He creates it there, where it was not before. And uh, that is what makes not only our souls holy and pleasing to God, but God sees in the soul at that point a child, a very child of God, because he places there not only the resemblance of his Son, the likeness of his divine Son, but as our Lord said, 
If you receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that the Father and I will come and we will dwell within that soul. We will dwell within him. So in a certain sense, I mean, you'd have to say that sanctifying grace is an actual indwelling of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost himself mm-hmm. within the soul. Um, you know, we, we read in Scripture that when the Holy Ghost actually comes to the soul and enters the soul, uh, he speaks a word, and the word is Abba, Father. So by the very presence of that sanctifying grace in the soul, the very presence by grace in the soul, the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, um, that soul can actually address God as Father. That soul becomes a child of God. That is even more wonderful than God raising up children to Abraham out of the stones of the earth. That God can raise up children to himself from the sinful souls of men. That's astounding. But he, but he does. He can. He has, has, the, has the power to, um, to affect that grace in the soul. It's wonderful. Father, I think that's a beautiful thought to end on tonight, unless there's anything else that you wanted to add before we close. Well, uh, Tom, I, I would ask uh, prayers for a dear soul who passed away, Joanne Friedman, uh, just passed away over a long, long bout with cancer. And uh, I ask tools for her, ask great, uh, prayers for her dear soul and uh, for her loved ones. She has loved ones around her to miss her, certainly. And uh, there are uh, so many other good souls like that have passed before, before us, as we say, um, with faith and hope and charity. <clears throat> we can't, uh, we're not the ones who can say to them, you know, come ye uh, blessed and, and take possession of the kingdom. Only our Lord Jesus Christ can do that. Uh, so as fond as we are of them, as convinced we are of their virtue, of their faith and their hope and their love for God, uh, it would be laughable for us to suggest that they, well, like the Nova Soto, that everybody goes to heaven. You know, let's, you know, that's that's uh, sad. Uh, our role here is not to uh, to usurp the role of Christ in saying, "Come, ye blessed of my Father, and take possession of the kingdom." Um, our role here is not to canonize anyone, right? You and you and I, only the supreme authority of the Church, the true Catholic Church, has the authority to do that. <clears throat> but even that is not a, a telling a soul enter heaven. It's an acknowledgement of a fact <laughs> that has happened that Christ has welcomed a soul to heaven. So um, as much as we care about these dear souls and as much as we admire them, our job here is not to canonize them, but to pray for them. Um, that's what they want of us. That's what they need of us. And so uh, it's another delusion of the Novus Ordo, a very very sad and cruel delusion of the Novus Ordo that everybody's supposed to assume that their loved ones and acquaintances who die just automatically get to heaven. But the Novus Ordo has completely destroyed the idea of what true sainthood is and what true sanctity is. So they're willing to just basically canonize anybody and everybody. It's politically correct. We, we can't do that. We have to pray for these souls. The souls in purgatory should be in our prayers every day, continually in our prayers, especially those God has given us the grace to know and love. So here you talk about our addressing Our Lady as our life, our sweetness, and our hope. 
<clears throat> we just talked about our the saints of God, like loving him in the presence of God in heaven. But that naturally leads us to consider those whom uh, we, by the grace of God, have known and loved here on earth and our duties to them. Uh, we have these advocates and these uh, uh, benefactors in heaven who are willing to pray for us. But we also, on our, in our own right, we have a duty to pray for others, and notably for those really in the church suffering, the souls in purgatory. So if there's any message I'd leave, like to leave for that uh, tonight, I would say, please, if you uh, are not in the habit or in the practice of praying for the souls in purgatory regularly, actually many times a day, please include them in your prayers every day. Uh, ask God to have mercy on them and, and fill the ranks of heaven, as it will. Our Lord says there are many mentions, mansions. We'd like to fill them up. So uh, one way you can is by praying for the souls in purgatory. Contribute mightily to that. So please do. Mm -hmm. Father, thanks for being here tonight. God bless you. Well, thank you, Tom. God bless you all. God bless our viewers, too. Yes, thanks to our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.